0: Goose. Okay. All right, perfect. All right. People have asked, where are all these people from my past? How can this story be possible? <laughs> it seems so extreme, these things that happened in Arizona. Back it's in really the day, life, right? we've got DJ PRG <laughs> from this infamous... Limo picture. <laughs> this was one uh, night in and- This was Wild Woman's birthday. It was uh, another person in that Limo's birthday. Wild Man chugged the yeah. whole bottle of GHB. Can you? Can I'm, you- so, I'm so
1: sorry to hear. I didn't even realize he had passed until like right before we we're going to do the, the uh, initial interview schedule. So,
0: yeah, and
1: I know you guys were like
0: before we get into your life story
1: what yeah. what do you remember of that night in the limo okay so here here's the missing link <laughs> so i i was outside peter was like kind of stag- staggering around the limo i was smoking a cigarette and he starts to uh, you know nod out he's like he's losing consciousness consciousness rapidly two like young candy kids run up to me they're like oh my god what's what's he on and i'm like is he's going to be okay just took a little too much ghb they beeline to the limo driver he's already concerned and like oh my god you got to call the hospital and i'm so that's how they called 911 i'm like oh my god what did i just do and so that that was the missing link where the candy kids got the uh paramedics involved did you see how many
0: did you see how many paramedics it took to carry him it was like there was like an
1: (laughs) it was like an army of them yeah, that was, uh, I just remember that was, it was sad too, because you know, before that it was all birthday festivities and then all of a sudden it just went really sad. That was a quiet limo ride back up to Phoenix.
0: He said he woke up the next day in a hospital with, um, a big gay doctor staring at his dick and he had a, a catheter in it or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've been, that too. The, one, the one time that I was hospitalized for an overdose was actually GHP and alcohol, like 2000. Oh,
0: it's a bad combination, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, it was like it was like a um, little bit of beer in the afternoon. I took what I thought was a moderate dose, and, yes. and I'm staying at my parents, and this happened. Like it was just me and my mom there, but like totally ba- black out in the bathroom. Fall, re- like I realized the bruise on my chest was from like I think I went to my knees and kind of like bumped against bumped my chest against the uh, sink. And then my mom has no idea what's going on. I just like come out all like you know
0: yeah
1: out and go past that and then wake up with the room full of paramedics and cops. Wow. Yeah. So, so let, let me just, let me just make it
0: clear for the viewers then that you weren't part of the trafficking organization. No. You were, you were, you were a DJ, you were involved in the scene at the time. You were clicked up with us. We were, you know, we were in the limo on this particular night. And, um, there was another character from my book Party Time. I call him Gangster Dan, the guy with no thumb. Yes. And, and he was, he was robbing people in the rave community. Um, he was very fit- proud he loved boasting about it yeah he had loads of guns weapons all kinds of shit he was clicked up with various gangs and then one night we was in quadrangles and we got a call and they said look he's in an apartment i was at acid joey's actually in quadrangles and we got a call saying he's over in quadrangles so wild man went over there on his own g-dog wanted to go with him um the wildman's like i don't need a gun he just goes over there we think all hell's gonna break loose and then ten minutes later, Wildman comes back and he says, "I'm moving in with him."
1: <laughs> but you, you've,
0: you've got you've got a gangster dance story, haven't you? Because I do with the scout it, with the scout leader.
1: Yeah, it's 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 literally the most one of the most surreal examples of like suburban life in Scottsdale. getting really weird. Um, so around 10 or so I was, I was in uh, Cubs cast and like a year of Boy Scouts. After that, my scout leader was this guy that lived around the corner. Um, I became really good friends with his son over the years and, um, his, his parents was like, it was an interesting story because they're from West Virginia. Uh, they found out at some point along the way, their house was on a civil war battleground. So they collected a nice sum of money, moved out to Scottsdale. You know, they're, they're having a good time, kept, kept everything together. But like once his parents got divorced, uh, I think that was where the main instigators, and just uh, his dad jumped in with like the, Hey, I got two teenage sons. Let's have some fun. His dad started doing a lot of GHB. And one night I go over there. I, um, I think I can't remember if I was on break from Arizona state, but I was staying at my parents that night. Just go over there and we're hanging out for a while. Um, I could tell there's like kind of a, a heated conversation going on between Dan and my friend. And he asked my friend to put me on the phone. Now, for as as uh hard as he tried to portray himself, he was like in a really like endearing way, at least on that level, he was like he kind of fanboyed with me. You know, he would be like mm-hmm. dicks to everyone else to be like, hey, PRG, you know. And, and so he has uh, my friend hand the phone off to me and just really nonchalantly, he's like, he's like, hey, what's up, bro? Yeah, just just hang out over there, bro. I wanna show you something. Which was awful advice. Was, so I'm like, okay, this sounds kind of sketch, but I'll, I'll see what's going on. I find out like as time's going on, there was like whatever, like an ounce or something of Coke, Coke involved and someone wasn't getting paid. So by the time they showed up, my friend's dad, as a safety measure, which escalated things dramatically, took a shotgun out, put it on the bed, and not knowing that, like when um, when uh, Dan and his friend came in, they were you know it was like a a well coordinated home invasion of sorts. So they scouted out all the rooms; they wanted to make sure it was safe. See the shotgun. So then all of a sudden, it escalates right out the gate, and long at one point. When things are still really tense, I'm literally thinking about running out the back door, jumping over the fence, and like running around the corner. It was like maybe like a, a block to my parents' place. I didn't do that, and then things simmered down. Phone calls were made, and the guy there with uh, with Dan was literally, and I I knew him kind of more acquaintances. He was literally like, you could have gotten this guy killed just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's like. Just to reiterate, this was my Cub Scout leader, you know? And that that's like really like a perfect example of like how, even though like Scottsdale is a pretty, you know, tame suburban place, I always managed to find weird situations there, like really weird. People in, the UK-
0: people in the UK have a hard time comprehending this. It seems to them like something that will break you bad. But could you just perhaps explain to people in the UK what the Valley of the Spun was like back then, how prolific weapons were, how many, maf- you know, all kinds of Mafia characters, there's the, the New Mexican Mafia, there's gang bangers. Yeah. There's, 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 yeah, could you just, like, set, set
1: the picture for people, what it was like? Absolutely. So there was this interesting dichotomy in the rave scene back then where it would be, like, people that were, you know, all about you know the peace love unity, you know, and respect but they're kind of gangster too you know and um like at, when I first got involved in the scene it was like um you know I'd see a few like dealers here and there kind of scattered around different clubs but um like between what was it I, I started to go I went to, what got me into the whole thing was I went to tunnel the limelight at like the end of the peak of the club kid era so I got to see like it's sensory or but amazing um when i came back to arizona it was like a really small scene um where i was almost disappointed but then like what and you you were at ground zero for all this too it's like between 95 and 97 like like prodigy and chemical brothers broke it just exploded you know so all of a sudden you you know about the economy that that created you know, and it's and on my end, too, it's like um, I realized eventually I'm glad I caught this that like that experience on my end with the DJing really like it gave it, it, it kind of fucked up my work ethic for a while because like I did the math like back then it was like a supply and demand thing, you know, by the 2000s, everyone was becoming a DJ turntables were out selling guitars. But back then, the scene's exploding. I'm like, you know, still kind of learning how to beat match and stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm getting booked for gigs. And like, I did the math for like 99 or 2,000. I did a Camel Bartenders Ball gig. I was getting paid like 12 bucks a minute for that, you know. And then, um, as, as an aside, I remember as I like started to get exposed more to the English song legend. It was like I I had heard who I I didn't remember who say that like you know one of the things was there was all these uh, you know small time people moving stuff and you kind of came in like consolidated it into like (laughs) you know what I'm saying because the market was there and you know it was it was there for someone to do that but um. It, like once the scene started blowing up, it was crazy because it was no longer this core group of like, you know, it was very familiar at first. Uh, the scene was so small that like, it was inevitable. Once I started seeing, for example, more, more kids from Chaparral and Scottsdale coming out, it, it was like really a sign that like, it was getting to the point where like anyone that liked to do any type of like, I don't know, risque or whatever, that, that has like a, a will to be wild was starting to go to parties you know and and so like i mean i'd like to think i definitely developed my dj skills enough to justify the bookings but like so much of it was being in the right place at the right time so yeah. is that when
0: is that when sam the bull's crew came moved in was um the that, the, the Scottsdale I, people access radius all that stuff
1: you know what it was um i think i think i had said we will call her uh, misty for the uh, purposes interview who that's kind of how I came into your orbit um I was nice and safely on the outside of it you know just kind of as an observer enjoying the perks but um I I um uh, da, 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 sorry I lost my train of thought
0: misty misty
1: <laughs> yeah 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 um
0: Oh, man, what a when time. when you came into our orbit
1: yeah and then when i was um damn it i just had a total brain fart yeah, yeah. I, I, I
0: was asking you about you know sammy the bull's crew moving into the scene oh yeah yeah yeah. axis okay, radius
1: i was, I was a sammy the bull thing so yeah what was that there was a club yeah it was that um scottsdale University. University, well, the, the first time I ever heard about them, and I didn't know, you know any link with Sammy the Bull, I just remember Misty outside this club that was at um, university in rural for a while, like putting some like, younger guys at the door that like, you know, very much met the description of like the devil dogs dudes, that, you know, as I came to know it later. And she said something about like, that was like the other crew. You know what I'm saying? It was like it was a little bit. Is that of is that the club
0: in Tem? Is that the club in Tempe that became known as Club Freedom?
1: No, no, this was. Um, I'm trying. To, it's actually um, University and Rural. It wasn't. Yeah, Scott, it is was, it Scottsdale or Tempe? No, it was. It was Tempe. Okay, and you know what? It was either there. in... Mac- and talk but i think it was real, but anyway so she pointed out like i knew there was this other crew out there yeah and at that point i don't even really think that i knew who sammy the bull was but in retrospect like once once you got busted it was like and i kind of knew the, the the full story more it was really fascinating because i ended up just through you know dating misty like, um, just like witnessing a lot of the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, um, you know, I, uh, she was what, I'm sorry. She was the one that told me about, uh, Sammy the bull, but, um, I think, uh, what was it? 2000 right this was kind of like one of the things that like created the tension that then led to us breaking up um let me let me just clarify something for the viewers
0: then so you know i've just recently done a documentary of national geographic how he busted the ball about the gravano x ring and my x ring and i've I've learned through doing this that sammy the ball really didn't have a clue what was going on he was in his house. All he did was give his son some money. That was his indictment. for right. the So it was it was Mike Papa who was running the ring. Then Gerard Gravano came in. They were the ones at, at street level. A lot of people at street level were claiming uh, Sammy DeBull. But then, then years later, it all came out, you know, what actually unfolded. Now, the Devil Dogs were the an enforcement arm of the Gravano organization. Right, right. They used to beat people up and bark and yelp like dogs as they did it. And they, they were, oh, um, that was, I didn't know that. Actually. Yeah. 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 So just, just, for the viewers. So they understand what we're talking about properly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Go back, right?
0: so, so what, what, what was your first introduction to wild man?
1: Um, I, I think it was when miss. Yeah. Yeah. It was like right after we started dating and I, I started like, you know, coming more, more into your orbit and met wild man. Um, I think it was like around, it was like summer or fall of 99. And it's just like, you know, he was just such a character. I didn't know, I didn't know him that well, but I mean, he's like straight out of a Guy Ritchie movie, you know? And so, um, yeah, that's how I came to know of him and Wild Woman as well. And then what I was going to say too, because this is a, this is like kind of a slice of that, that historical timeline with what happened with you and Sammy. So, um like late winter spring of 99 um misty had a friend in george i don't know if you remember this uh dj friend who wanted like ten thousand dollars worth of pills
0: oh my and, god this is the story yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, yeah. so i know i knew
1: like you know f- through uh secondhand accounts that you know basically as you should you wanted to know the details when you heard them, you're like, "Mm -mm, no, it's not, 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 not uh, something I want to be on board with. And so through someone else that was working for you, um, who said they had another plug, he took the money and went to go like, this is like the beginning of the Sammy the bull blast and went to the other supplier. And when he alleged that he got pulled over afterwards and like all the I forget if it was the money or that, thing he may have already had the pills. And then he was released. No one believed him. Like, it was just, like, this guy totally ripped you off. I remember picking up the phone one night. Yeah, this is still uh, well within the landline era. And um, Misty's on the phone with her, with her friend who had given the $10,000. And as we were picking up the phone and it was like, you know, just a really vague, they're like, you need to handle this. Or, you know, we're going to have to come out there and handle this. So I just like, oh, my God, what has she gotten into? And it was like, there was other things going on, too. But it was like, that that was part of like, what uh, really started to exacerbate the cracks that were showing in the relationship. And, and as far as, like you know, like, uh, your focus on the criminal justice system and, you know, things related to it. It's really sad what happened. I don't know if you know this with her, but when we started dating, you know, I I knew she was working for you to some extent and she used to be a stewardess. And so I I think at the end of the summer, once like, honestly, the first night I was like, oh, this is like a one night stand after the club. We ended up dating. And so by the end of summer, I'm like, you know, maybe it's time, maybe it's time to think about what's next in life, you know? And she seemed receptive to that. She was, she started training with, um, I think Southwest to go back into being a stewardess. And of all the things that could screw that, like she's making an earnest attempt to get her life right. We always had house parties, uh, like my sister and I and our whatever our rotating third roommate would, but as always have house parties. And our buddy, who's a little, he's like a very aloof, uh, eccentric artist let's say he forgot to turn his lights on they had open containers in the car and got pulled over and so misty got a ticker for that in the end after going through all her training to become a stewardess and try to get her life on track they fired her over that over an open container you know
0: just just let me let me elaborate on some of this definitely views because you've gone over a lot of information uh so so um what rob here is saying is that misty who was associated with us had someone gave her $10,000 to buy pills. And one of, a guy who was working for me was also working for Sammy De Bull's crew. So that guy, he took the 10,000, I didn't have product. So he says, right, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go and take this to Sammy De Bull's crew and that's what he did. And he, got, he said he got pulled over and the money was gone. And that's the story that Wildman's told this story many times. So I wasn't aware that any of this had happened, but Wildman found that before me. So Wildman, oh, yeah. yeah, Wildman went and dealt with that guy. He punched him so hard in the face, the guy's uh, t- tooth ended up so deeply lodged between his knuckles oh, that right. he couldn't get him out. Wildman hates going to hospitals, so he was forced to go to hospital, and they took it out. And then they were they were about to sew it up, but he didn't he didn't want to wait around for them to sew it up. He just walked out of the hospital and they were like just shaking their head at him. So he, he went home and he had some yeah. fish, he had some fishing wire and he just saw, he just saw, <laughs> he, just, he just saw it DIY, baby. DIY. Wire. Yeah, yeah. Oh so so did, did you see the wild man or wild woman doing anything crazy
1: outside of the night in Tucson? Um, you know what? I, I think like, for the most part anything that i saw was just them being the characters that they are you know but i was always i you know you, obviously with you know dating who i was i get a little breakdown of like the way things are so i knew clearly peter served in an enforcement uh capacity and so like when there was a couple times at the end where we would fight we would like get into a big argument, and that would be the threat. Like, how come Peter over here? There was, like, I- I'll never know, obviously. But um, you know, between when Sammy, the ball got busted, and then you did, which was like, what, about a year apart?
0: Yeah, yeah. Things were going downhill fast at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I got busted. I got busted May 16th, 2002.
1: May 16th, 2000. Oh yeah that's right cuz i was uh
0: cuz some of the the gravano people though, they, there was a, an original round of them getting busted and then a lot of them just got out on bail bond and they went yeah. right they went right back to it so then there was another round of them getting busted again
1: oh, yeah yeah right back in yeah um yeah i got i remember uh, this uh, unrelated that i remember when the uh it was like my 20s fifth birthday or so and i'd heard you know a month or two earlier that he got busted and um i just remember i pulled up that new times article i was a little uh little uh elevated on some birthday blow at that point and, I'm just, <laughs> and my friend and his girlfriend are passed out and i'm just like on the computer like just like scrolling through the new times article and when i saw those mug shots man it was just like <laughs> I I know all but two of these people, and I probably know the other two now. I don't I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but Cody and I went to high school together. Oh, I never, I never really knew him that well. Oh
0: my goodness! So Cody Bates was uh, one of my right hand guys. He, he he stayed sober, so he had a lot of responsibility, and he's actually um, next to Wildman in the limo right there. You can see him at the back. That's a nice. Yeah. There's uh, Rob right now where my finger is. Cody and Wilman at the back. And um, he, sadly, Cody got depressed when we, all, when we all got arrested. He went on heroin and his, his uh, parents sent him to a, a, a rehabilitation center run by Scientologists where he was put on uh, drugs with a side effect of suicidal thoughts and he hung himself. And if people want to research that, go online, Courtney Bates, you you could find that case online because that it was settled. Yeah.
1: That's tragic.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I never I,
1: saw that. That that was a surprise too to see him pop pop back up in the in the like the rave underground. Cause I remember like I never really knew him that well in high school, but I remember I think he like only went to Chaparral for a couple of years and then went to another school. But I remember when he was when he was totally like early, early nineties, like metalhead yeah. type guy. You know, and then like one day, it was like the last person I expected to pop up at a rave. But like I said, like so many people from, from Chaparral and Scott still started going. Yeah.
0: So, and so was um, like the- we're we're a couple of the only ones alive, not the main men. I mean, if you look at, so you've got Wildman, you've got Joey Crack, you've got Acid Joey, Tucson Charlie, we've uh, uh, got Big Micah, you've got the Pro- Jerry the Prophet, Howie you got, honestly, there's literally about 10, five to 10 of the main men dead from that period. Because I think our lifestyles were so high risk. And those people were so, yeah. were so hardcore. And so a lot of them just burnt out and, and ended up, yeah, just dead one way or the other.
1: It, it was, um, you know, it was, it was a sober, sombering moment. Like, um, let's say about 10 years ago. You know, a few years into me being on Facebook, where it just became crystal clear that like our our average lifespans are not not up there with the general population. It's like and, and um, it's haunting because like some some usually it filters it out, but when I'm doing like um, invites for an event page for a music event, I've had a couple times where it's like I've sent out all the invites to to everyone who's alive on my friend's list and I've had it i pulled it up where it's like it's like the rest in peace list like wow. a point, you know, and it really drives the point home of just yeah. like you know and it's like there's some people that I would have never never thought wouldn't make it but it's it's a hard lifestyle and you know I noticed I think in the 2000s like once uh there was a pair of uh DJs that literally like they died they both had fatal overdoses in the same hotel room over the was, course of a, a binge there on on meth and heroin was that in um, vegas there but they're from arizona yeah. that was they're from arizona i think it happened in arizona too
0: oh I'm in arizona
1: yeah they, yeah they just went on a binge that that never uh, never ended yeah or, all right yeah. So,
0: so so like during this period down when we were all lit up there was uh two houses that I remember, like people just go to after party at these two houses. There was the tall one's house, who, who was claiming English, and then there was the house belonging to the the two deceased, um, Micah and, and the prophet, Jerry. Could could you describe what, you know, what these after parties were like? Because you were, you were gigging no, us. Uh, you know, you, we, we
1: should start, we should start with the, the after party to end all after party. No, when... <laughs> When the second or third uh, music party, which was Swell, swell Records for background. Yeah. Uh, for a while, like the main promotional crew. Um,
0: was that the uh, one that got raided by the cops?
1: Yeah, was. They had two in a row, like music. The first music went, went over fine. The second one, I, it was the one that Kiyoki played. There was one in the desert that got busted <laughs> and there was like choppers in the desert. And then there was one that was in downtown Phoenix, and it was just like that whole night had this. It was like kyoki's energy just like exploded in the crowd. You can just feel like there was someone outside, like naked and, under, and overdosing. It was just crazy. I and escaped. So- I
0: escaped from that one, getting raided in Kyoki's limo. It's so surreal. Oh, yeah. So I know a lot,
1: of, a lot of crossover too. Like, yeah. I think that news article they talked about. Um, Like, wasn't he like locked in the? bathroom, like in the bathtub. Scottsdale bathroom. Hilton
0: Villas. You yeah, we had to knock the door down to bring him back to life.
1: So like when that when that broke <laughs> up, we up, we all ended up at refills, um, you know, at uh, my DJ partner's place. And I mean, it was, crazy. it was like, you know, sometimes when you had the after parties and it was like the party got broken up early, it's like that energy doesn't just go away, but the people are still like ready to keep going. So it was like a raging after party. Um, right out of the gate, but then Kyoki showed up, you know, and, and for me, I mean, like, yeah, superstar DJ kyoki for me on a personal level, because, like, that night, like, I went to Tunnel Limelight, Tunnel once, Limelight twice, but Limelight in particular, when I went to Disco 2000, that was, like, like, that changed the trajectory of my life. I was, in like, punk and alternative before that, and I came back like, I think I want to become a DJ. Well, like, it's a very, it's a very sentimental... Even though it was, like, there's a dark side of that shit, too. Like, I remember my friend, sis, my friend from the Bronx, being like, see that guy? He's on Angel Dust. You know, but it was it was just insane. But, like, on a, even though, like, my DJ ego had started to expand at that point, that was still enough of a thing where it's, like, there was a little bit of fanboy. Me. So, when he showed up, it's like, this is fucking cool. And... Like I met him three times and every time I met a different person because the circumstances are very different. And at this party, he showed up on all the drugs and it was like, like Phil and I are DJing. And um, I remember him like sitting, it was like, he was sitting back in his chair in the corner, like it was his throat. He's like more break beat. <laughs> and so then eventually he goes on and it was like watching it was like watching like a, like, a, like a surreal cartoon character DJ. Like just so much unnecessary stuff, but it was awesome. He was like, he wasn't just like clapping, like crazy. He was like, and like just like every movement was just like so much ecstasy going on. In him. But um, that was... Uh, yeah, his buddy, was- his,
0: his buddy God said, um they They went all over the country gigging. And they get a pill yeah. here, a line there. And the reason they kept coming back to Arizona is we were just like, we're just like dumping ounce of this in front of them and like a hundred pills in front of them. <laughs> like-
1: yeah. I remember, I remember out of school scene kind of impressed. Like, damn, you guys know how to do it out here in the desert. <laughs> but yeah, that's, so that was the first time I met them. The second time was, um, at Crowbar downtown, um, when they would have like house DJs play there on Sunday night.
0: Sunday night, yeah.
1: So it was like we have had a few drinks or some shit, but he was very lucid. You told, you know, he this was like <laughs> the guy behind the drugs, you know. And I had a really like, you know, normal conversation with him, told him like, well, you know, that that night at Lyme might change my life. You know, I remember being like, it changed my life too, man. You know, and just really, really cool guy. And then the third time I saw him was just really brief. The um I went to Winter Music Conference in Ultra in 2009, and he was about to play the pool party. So I, I, I like said hi to him real quick, but he's like you know, posing with the girls and stuff, like Superstar take you <laughs> But uh, yeah, that first night was just insane. It was, it was a great night, too. Um,
0: it, well, he must still be partying because it was a news story that went out not so long ago in years saying that a a dead body was found in his house with like 100,000 cash and thousands of pills and ounces of drugs and all
1: kinds of shit. It was, they just found it, found the body there. I think think the
0: guy, I think the guy had overdosed or something. It was that, he was like an executive. Um, He was a high up executive from one of the, uh, I don't know, media company or something. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's, um, what
1: was I going to say? I, um remember like at that, uh, that party, <laughs> like, uh, John, you know, um, coming back to where the DJ was like, like so, to Kyoki just followed Phil to the bedroom and tried to fuck him, or some shit like that. It was just like <laughs> kind of thumbs up the, the weirdness of those days. But, uh, yeah, that I remember like, um, that was always like, a a, uh, thing that people would anticipate, like how how much is Kyoki gonna be like just out of his head and like, you know, he was kind of notorious for being like a good DJ when he was like lucid, but that, uh, you know, sometimes the, the drugs became the bigger president. And I, I mean, being a resident DJ at Limelight back then, that's definitely something that's gonna, you know, put you on the, fa- the fast paced life.
0: So what, what was the craziest thing you ever personally experienced in the rave scene back then? Hmm.
1: That's a good question. Craziest thing I experienced. It's just like anything could happen. That, that what, what, I, I could probably think of something crazier. One of the most eventful, just like, holy shit, nights in my experience with the, the Phoenix rave scene was um, it was so weird, like 95 or 96, when my sister and I started going to the parties, it was like my dad went on, um, it was like the first time I was on the World Wide Web Internet, he like went on to Hyperreel. I don't know if you ever saw that site, but like he, it, it was um, like an array of electronic music message board. And then they had a link to the air with vaults where it was like all this like drug information. And so like 95 or 96, my dad's like, telling my sister, like, I know what goes on at these raves. By the end of 96, he's like, I'll give you some money if you wanna invest in a rave. <laughs> so, and, and I was like, well, I gotta I got take advantage of this. It ended up snowballing, and something like much bigger because there was another event that like, uh, Mikey and the idea guys and like Karma from Liquid Karma and these kids on the carpet crew are gonna throw. So we ended up merging those. Um, and when I say we, I actually, again, through just like a weird twist of chance events, my um, one of my best friends from high school came over right after I got my turntables when I came home for uh, Christmas break, since he closed down the dorms at Arizona State. And um, I noticed like once he got to the turntables, he like he didn't want to step away he was really, really mesmerized by it. And so in a uh, in a twist of things that happened at Scottsdale like his dad was like I don't know if he ever went to college but he's like well you could start your freshman year of college next year or I'll give you money to start a record store and so that's how Ground Zero Records came about oh, wow. that's, that's how that's how I met uh, Dan too because he was hanging out there and um yeah so that was like that was definitely one of my uh bigger strokes of of good luck that helped me get off my feet because like now it's a totally different story it's like i can go i i I try to make a rule of like i because i believe in supporting underground artists like i know a lot of djs just like pirate everything they play um you know i like to uh you know support artists because I am an artist myself. But like back then you had this really big scarcity thing like that doesn't exist anymore. Like if there's if there's a hit track, you know, or let's say it's not a hit track. It's just something that a record store would normally stock one or two copies of and when they're gone they may or may not ever be reordered. So in the context of that scarcity, it's like, I mean, what better thing could you have as a DJ? then to have your friend start a record store and then all of the that was like when it was really going like full blown breakbeat with what I was playing and it's like before all those records hit the hit the floor I'm like sorting through them all you know and and that was that store didn't even last a full year it was funny too because it like basically first 6 months it might have looked kind of promising um Last six months it pretty much turned into people selling weed out of the background. <laughs>
0: Hold on.
1: That was like when the quality of pot that we got went way up because all of a sudden, like we had a cool spot on Mill Avenue, you know, it was wants to be part of the rape scene. And so, so yeah, that was, uh, that was the end result there. But, uh, I think it, that started, that record store opened in like August of 96 and was like closed by, uh, like within like 10 months or so, but it was a fun ride. You know, being right on middle at that. Did, did you ever did you ever see
0: Acid Joey up to any of his antics?
1: I did. Like Joey's one of those people that um never really knew him well, and he interacts to have were really good. But it's like there's there's a handful of people, many of which are in your book, where before the scene blew up. Like I said, it was very much tight core group of people that you know knew each other.
0: From, yeah. Chupa,
1: from Chupa from and Swell. Chupa, yeah. Chupa's what Chupa's what really got me sucked into the Phoenix racing. It was very different. It was like very small, more underground. You know, the beats were a little scarier than the you know the house at, at Limelight. So I'm like getting used to it, but Joey's just one of those people that like I don't I don't remember a Phoenix Underground scene without Joey. Like he would be able, he'd be one of the you know first few months of me going out to Chupa. I remember him. Yeah,
0: just for people who are watching then. So Chupa, um, it was a location Eddie Amador had in a very um, central (laughs) gangbanger-infested area. I mean, literally, you would park outside there. The whole street was crazy with homeless gang members. Sadly, a female got shot uh, coming out of Chupa on a drive-by. Yeah, I wasn't there on that occasion, but um, yeah, it was a, it was a very dangerous neighborhood. But that's why I yeah. met Asa Joey. He was people were just stood around watching him dance, and he was just so he was big, but he was so fluid. He was always on camera. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I, and he and he definitely was one of the. I thought it was so awesome. Like once I spent enough time in the scene to to recognize this. It's like just like in New York. I was so especially with psychedelics involved to doing my attendance. Uh, with the liquid dancing you know where like people people are just fluidly like you know hands are doing a little you know kind of like like psychedelic break dancing you know but when i came back to phoenix you started to see that more but you really didn't see that style there was a it was awesome there was a phoenix style of dancing you know it was like there was different variations of it but joey was very much like one of those people that kind of like exemplified that 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 Phoenix Telegram style, I've always, yeah.
0: I've always said he should have been in music videos. And um, to think back then, like Sandra Collins was just starting out, Eddie Amador was just starting out, the, the, and they both got massive. But the person who's got the biggest is Marcus Schultz.
1: Man, he's got yeah. the following and, and he's, he's just, got now. I, I talked to him actually, I think it was the only time I ever really had a conversation with him because. It, I was like, you know, I was with Ground Zero first, and then as soon as Ground Zero closed down, it was like, eventually it was like, oh, well, yeah, I'm a Swell DJ. But at first, it was like, like when I got a job at Swell, and I'm like, hey, Russ, can I can I put that I'm a Swell DJ on the flyer? It was like, you know, I have arrived. But um, um, da, 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 um
0: Marcus Schultz
1: yeah so marcus like plastic records was his thing and until i started dating misty i was like i played a lot of trance at the beginning i didn't really play trance again until it was like when you have a girlfriend that's like you know that gets that much enjoyment out of it wasn't i disliked it before i'm like i don't play more trance but marcus and i were not in the same orbit like i'd see him around all the time i went to the work sometimes but i um because he had a radio show, didn't he was it the Edge Factor. Oh yeah, the Edge Factor. Yeah. Edge factor. Oh, we we used
0: to want, listen to that religiously. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, it was so good. It was so good. And like, and he did a. He was one of the uh, speakers at a clinic at the Winter Music Conference in two thousand nine. And you know, seeing his heart both in Phoenix, and everyone. Really knew. Him. I, I, you know, chatted with him real quick afterwards, and you know, you could tell that. Uh, not even that he has a big ego, but it was like you know he he's he had definitely arrived by then you know it's, it's crazy like same thing with Z trip too where um you know we didn't we didn't have any idea where any of this stuff was going back then obviously it started blowing up but it was like you know as far as like longevity and stuff like that like who would have thought like you know 25 years later Z trip i mean he was ranked high back then but like Marcus <laughs> is like mm-hmm. it's not like oh yeah he's he's from phoenix and he did pretty good it's like marcus is like a name in trance it's like Eddie Amador with house music yeah (laughs) and like it has a lot to be proud of as far as like the contribution of our underground scene
0: they've done absolutely phenomenal i remember when Sandra Collins was hitting me up for tapes that my dad was sending me over from the UK from the Manchester rave scene when this was like 91 92 around then i think Yeah, yeah
1: I was going to ask you too. Like, were you a little ahead of the the learning curve, having like the the, the British advantage with? with well, that, blown- that, that that was
0: that, that was the thing. Um, so I'd visited my aunt in Arizona when I was a teenager in like the eighties, and the music was like it, it varied from like country and western to like some dance stations, like Michael Jackson, Prince, oh, yeah. and then and then the, the rock stuff, Metallica. But there was no and then and then when I came um, in ninety one. The rave scene had been going quite strong in the UK for two or three years. It was like the summer of love was was 1989. Uh, uh, I I came over and I I was expecting to go raves in 1991 in Arizona. and I'm banging my head against the wall. But then I eventually got introduced to, um, I think I went to a club called the Blue Iguana. I went to a gay bar called, this was before the works. It was in downtown Phoenix, Oh, shit! What was it called? Um, the Silver Dollar Club. Oh so, yeah, yeah. Through through club through club iguana, Silver Dollar Club, uh, and eventually swell. That's that's where I met Sandra Collins, Eddie Amador, uh, Pete yeah, yeah. Sales, and just just clicked into the rave scene. And over time, um, you know, I started investing in the parties and the party favors, and it just grew from there. Yeah.
1: Wait, do you remember about what year your first party was? Like
0: so people were asking me to invest when i was still a stockbroker yeah and i think i quit being a stockbroker about 96 97 so i was actually making investments in the parties like 94 95 around then probably yeah
1: okay so like right around the time i was coming into it yeah like i, I, yeah. I went to limelight tunnel in uh july of 94 and then my sister started going to, to uh like swell parties and I think whatever other crews were back then, uh, people forever, like pretty much within a couple of months. I, um, I guess probably because I was like still really occupied, like uh, involved with the punk scene and playing, a, uh, one of my, uh, handful of punk bands at that point. So I just didn't really jump into it and in the going out level, I was getting a lot of like, uh, you know, CDs of like house and stuff like that at Z records. But it wasn't until um, New Year's Eve night going into 95, I went to Swell's Beyond Party. And, you know, I had fun that night, but going from like the limelight to, uh, <laughs> it, like, I'm sure there were other parties that were bigger back then, but for, for whatever reason, it was just like maybe, maybe 50 people, you know, and it was at the, I don't know if you remember the Jam Shack warehouse, but that was a big spot. So it was like, Tons of sound, you know, good DJs, but it was just like, where are the people?
0: I, yeah. I felt I felt the same as you. I, 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 I'm come from Manchester.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, so you've got
0: like tens of thousands of people raves like, out in the countryside and stuff. Get to Arizona, and it's just like the scenes just started, isn't it? It's, yeah. not, it's, it's not like the numbers weren't there, but I was thinking we've got to do something about this. But I had to make the money first to, to, to contribute
1: yeah it was, it, it was definitely um you know like in those early days i mean especially when there's like very few regulations you have to worry about when it's out underground it's like it started to become i remember i speaking of the money involved with the rape scene. i remember uh russ was swell getting pissed off because um god what was that guy's name um is his name slipped my mind right now but there was one writer in particular for new times that did most of the rave reporting. And he mentioned something, like, I guess the IRS gave Russ a call because of oh, that shit. article about like tens of thousands of dollars of cash for exchanging hands over the course of a single night. The IRS is like, really?
0: No, that wasn't my cash. That was just an allegation, allegedly.
1: Oh, <laughs> speaking of your cash, <laughs> I think it was so fascinating to. um, I mean there are so many parts of reading uh part that are fascinating. But like it was uh it was so interesting. Um let's
0: see. I have to see if some of the other DJs wanna uh, tell their story, like Emil, uh I'll just say DJ Gary. I won't say his last name because I'm I, I, I still talking talk okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He might see this and and think he he he'll uh, step up and, and tell his.
1: Yeah, he does love to tell the story. I yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad that him and I reconnected too because, um, you know, it's like obviously, If I'm playing, if, if I got into uh, playing breakbeat happily, like he was, you know, the guy that was you know the the biggest breakbeat DJ at that point. So it's like we've you know grown up to guys at some point, but it's like, I still, I still, love, I kind of like fall back into the little brother role with him. Cause Emil just, <laughs> you know, he wants to like spread the knowledge. So I'm just like, I'm just going to shut up, <laughs> right. but I love the guys. Like, it, it was really cool. Um, like when I got, when I started going to raise, I think a lot of people, it's like, it's so new and it's so like, you know, sensory overload and it's kind of mysterious and stuff you know and um so it was like you know i i mean a family but i worked. i had like a lot of admiration respect for like that small handful of underground djs that were around when i started and it was cool especially once i uh, became a small dj to like slowly like become friends with these people to where you know like now, now it's like we're we're all peers but at first it was like oh my God, I don't DJ anymore. you know but uh, the uh one thing that I was going to mention, you asked, you asked what the weirdest thing ever happened was, um, it wasn't, I, maybe weird is not the best word, it was, that's, that's the point I was going to make earlier. It was fascinating reading your book on these aspects where I'd heard the other side of the story, like orgasmic bliss, like from what I heard, and I was in the, I was in the car with John, I do he was on the phone with you, and it was a very intense call you know and so i you know it's like the other side is like well this person did this the money did this and then i read your side. i'm like that's not what i was told you know and um and yeah so it's it's, it's very interesting to, to see the uh the, the full story there and i think i was gonna say too when we we're talking about acid joey it's like i, I wasn't uh i might have been at the party but i didn't see that that uh event where he dressed up like a priest but just the way you wrote that it was such like a it painted painted such like a vivid picture of like you know like right down to the people like you can't do that you know and other people it hilarious he like, was
0: it, he was always up to something it was non-stop with him it was yeah it was a good vibe yeah yeah so you it's, know we we we, yeah, all, it we we all ended up incarcerated um and i've written about that as well about the arizona jail and prison system you had an experience of that yourself as well, didn't you? What what was, what was it like for you going in there?
1: I I avoided felony charges, so that's a big plus. But um, starting in two thousand one, two thousand one, two thousand four, I got a couple of DUIs where um, like the first that's, one was
0: that's, that's drunk driving for the UK yeah. audience, yeah,
1: yeah, drunk driving, and um, so for the first one. I just like, you know, you like you book an appointment with jail, like you show up on this day and you do your 24 hours or whatever. Second time you do 48 hours. So those were pretty benign experiences. It's like, you're on the work release side at that point, which is a very, you know, you've got people going in and out all day. So it's like contraband city. Like I remember there's like a, one of the bigger tents was like, like the store, you know, so you could get you know, cigarettes, we whatever you needed in there, but um, you know that was just pop in, pop out. Actually, the most eventful thing about the first time is I thought, like in my little naive uh, Scottsdale head, that it was going to be like, oh, it's twenty four hours, here. and I'm like, said, so, like they held me longer because like it's fucking twenty five hours, or they're like, you know, you can wait twenty eight hours now, but th- those, you know, were quick and easy, um. But then off that second DUI, you know, they, uh, what was it prescribed? They, they, they uh, put a requirement in there where I had to do like drug and alcohol awareness classes. And um, like after the, the months after the second DUI, I would say that would be one of my big declines with substance abuse, you know, where like, and the main thing was like meth started coming into the picture more. So I was kind of a holdout on that for a while, but going to the DUI classes then became a much lower priority. And I would like, you know, be staying at Fred's place for while whatever, the, the notice would go to my, my parents' house and if my mom and I were talking at that point, then I just wouldn't know about the court date. And then, you know, I'd have some interaction with the police where I'd end up, uh, like the first two times Like you do, it was like a week and a half, you go to court, they're like, all right, you're released on a probation. Finish your, finish your DUI classes. Um, the first time that that happened with a probation violation, it was it was an awful day. I tried to go into, um, uh, what is it? No, I meant LARC, whatever, whatever the detox uh, clinic in Mesa was. not, And very naively, so I'm thinking like they can actually do something for math. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> alcohol, benzos, OBS. Um, so it was like, um,
0: um duh, 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 duh. the, uh, first
1: time, I'm sorry, the first time I went in there, it was like, um, I was supposed to go to that deep clinic my mom dropped me off at like a friend of a friend's place to hang out before I called the the van to come pick me up. And this guy's like, you want to roll? Like before you go up there, I'm like, Oh, I'll give him something to detox. And I end up popping the pill and then called they're out of beds. So, and I'm like, I'm in like Northeast Scott's almost a fountain house. So it's like, it's getting cold out. It's like wintertime. And even though it was like, maybe like not even two miles. I ended up taking a taxi back to my mom's the next day. Just uh, not only am I like going through like meth withdrawals, I also have the ecstasy hangover. So my aunt came by at that point when like, it was just me lying in bed. And um, I don't think she knew that, she didn't know that I had done ecstasy that before, but she um, was like very, I mean, it was, like, based on care, but it was, like, she was just very uh, mean, I guess, for lack of a, lack of a better word, um, just, like, yelling at me about, like, how, you know, how I got her to detox. I'm, like, I tried to go, but whatever, like, that, um, I think the next day after that, I, um, I forget why I got a the parents, but it's, like, I want, I needed to go get cigarettes, I ended up breaking the door like there's like a top lock on my parents door she was locking it when she went to work to keep her tweet her son out of her bedroom so i end up breaking that after fighting with her on the phone get enough change to go get cigarettes go down the hill like 115 to Via Linda, and um my grandma would drive by there so after i got cigarettes i went over there and i heard my aunt like yelling at my grandma like you're enabling him and all this stuff and so she's, and it was like full blown meth weirdo mode at that point. So like, I, um, where they had like a an enclosed boat area. So I'm in there like texting, like fucking my family. People got, my family members got scared cause I'm just saying all this crazy shit. Like, you know, probably like, you know threatening to do some stupid shit. Like, kill myself, whatever. Um, when i can't when i like opened up the gate to come out of that boat enclosure the free yard, the cops out for, them. but they're like inside of the cop cars are so i'm like oh i should get out of here so i go back up to the shopping center and i'm like calling everyone i'm calling a at one point like dude i need to like get out of here like the police are looking for me and shit. and um my aunt ended up she sold me out so bad she's like I end up on the phone with her and she's like, You want some Burger King or are you hungry? Oh. So we're in the drive through the Burger King. All of a sudden, like all the Scottsdale PD come rolling in. And it was, without giving into details, it was just a very messy rest. Not like I was resisting. But please, it was just please like, go in. Please go into the It was like, No, literally, it was like, You guys just shoot me. Like this shit, <laughs> this tweaker stuff. No, but it was like so. Like I ended up having to do my first stint of more than you know forty eight hours for the for the second DUI, and it was like a week and a half in. Go to court, and then they released on probation. But this is like I was coming off the biggest meth, um, like the, the most I'd ever use on a regular basis, because I was dating some girl who was like the until he got busted. Like he was like the. Central Phoenix, like gay meth kingpin. And so we just had tons of metals. I mean, then we get, I get busted. And so I'm like detoxing off this in jail. Just like, you know, for those of you who haven't done, done meth, it's like, it's not like opiate detox where it's just like a very physical thing. It's like your brain is just short circuiting and, and trying to adjust to like incarceration life. And that very difficult and you know, after a while like it's just such an uncomfortable process going through the horseshoe oh yeah, please please
0: please describe describe or, the horse describe going through the horseshoe in detail no i always
1: like it was literally like the, the trauma of going through it. the first hours of my brain just like blocked it out um well, it just, what, what was, was it was like school. what was
0: it like arriving at the horseshoe first <sighs>
1: I mean, I'm still in like the shock phase when I arrived there the first time, but it's like, you know, I didn't even know like what the purpose of that facility was at first. I'm just like, you know, and they're like sorting into maximum security, and minimum security, and he's going where. And, uh, but it it just feels like you're like like a a game piece (laughs) where the DOs are just like, all right, you go over here, you go over here, and you're moving around. Sometimes you might like have three other people in there bench to sleep on sometimes it might be wall-to-wall people on the floor is it's just absolutely the same and during this process my appetite is just raging back because obviously you know some Matthews can lead to a little malnourishment so when they do they they always have uh all the new inmates go through like a, a like a medication constant. Well, you know, the med check, whatever. They, they see uh, a nurse, they ask what medications are on, that stuff. find out, you know, what medications need to have right away. And um, like I politely said to one of the guards before I went to I'm like, I, am, I feel like I'm ready to like like collapse from like lack of blood sugar. Like, can you please give me some juice or something? And he's like, yeah, we'll see. classic yeah, It's Like, we'll see what we can do. But in my head, I was like, oh, give me the juice afterwards. So, with a different D.O., it was like, I didn't even, I didn't like throw like a huge fit or anything. I was, it was more like desperation, like, wait, he said I could get you, like, I really need just something. And the response to that was, I think he like threw me to the ground. I, was like, I ended up in solitary for like a couple hours, but it was just like, so, you know, like, from an earnest point of like, officer i know i'm a bad person but i'm gonna put in desperation can you help me and the answer was just to to just exacerbate the trauma more by doing that <laughs> that was that was like the first 24 40 hours going through the horseshoe um then in that case since i was i was uh, uh, minimum security i went to durango Durango's an awesome place where you always get to hear people talk about how there's asbestos in the ceiling. And uh you know, you gotta worry about the race politics and all that stuff there, but at least
0: it blows people's minds in the UK because no. the prisons here don't yeah. have race race politics.
1: Right, right. Could so you explain like, explain what that means? It's so it's so organized. I would explain, uh by pseudo skinhead type dude later that it's like when I was like questioning the system, he's like, you look like a good, he's like, you look like a good guy. You might never go to prison. Most of these motherfuckers are going to prison. So we are teaching them how it's gonna be. It's like prison 101. One of the aspects, definitely more so on the West Coast in America than than out East is like, um, you have like everything divided up into like whites, are woods for pets like serve for packer woods um that would be like the precursor of the aryan brotherhood when you go to prison um the blacks are kinfolk the uh and then this is where it gets kind of random it's it's interesting when you first learn it it's like it's not like all latinos roll together you have the chicanos which are the mexican americans you know which are very distinctly different culture than someone who's like a vaquero from you know rural mexico and then you have the paisa which are the the mexican nationals a lot of them illegals obviously and what happens is because they are like on the ins they're, they're waiting to you know get dealt with by immigration so they don't get sentenced to tent city they kind of like accumulate in in places like durango where they are like the dominant political force in there but it's like it's so organized where when you come into your pod, when you go into the tents, every race has a greeter, which that you know, comes up, they, introduce themselves, they show you the ropes, they read the list of 20 rules or whatever it is as far as the do's and don'ts. Every race has an enforcer, and then there's a head and a bicep, you know, president, vice president type arrangement. So it's this very organized thing. And um, the lot, just jumping around here, the, the third time I got arrested for those probation violation things, they wised up to my, my uh, routine. They're like, no, nah, no, nah, don't say that you're going to go to DUI class. You got 30 days, you're off paper after that. Get out of our face. Um, so when I go to Tent City, that's time for the second half of the 30 days, um, it kind of like ratcheted up they have like a rationed up level of like racial politics to where at that point the greeter told me, you can break bread and share food with Chicanos. There's no paisa there because they're <laughs> back in Durango, you can't with kinfolk. And the, 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 the thing behind that was, oh, well, you know, it's like, if you, you know, get like a burrito one day, they're going to tell you, oh, they owe you back. So they're going to come at you sideways. So they have like you know all these rules like and obviously everyone's like sitting together with their race i actually ended up um and this is the last time i was in the maricopa county system cuz i moved out here right after that um i got so lucky cuz it's it's july and august when i'm doing this time in the tents my work assignment was the food factory so you gotta get like handcuffs, so many march out in the line, like maybe a mile to the building where they do all the food trays. Um, I was in the tray assembly uh, unit. And so while it's 105, 110 out, we're wearing thermals in a 40 degree cooler. And that was, that was amazing. But we had some perks, like we of ice cream and shift, and we would be able to have as many plates for dinner as we wanted. So, you know, people, everyone would, like, hang out and just eat and talk the other day. And it was, like, me, a black guy, and another white kid. I think the kid was, like, 19. And his brother, like, six months earlier, had been through the tents. He knew, he was, like, friends with all the higher-ups, the you know, Aryan skinhead, woods hierarchy. And this kid was just too young to where, like, he wasn't seeing the sadness in that lifestyle. He was like, yo, I'm like, fuck, I got street cred now. Everyone knows my brother. He was all about it. Um, so we're talking and I just made some comment, like, you know, these rules with like the race politics and don't break bread with this and that, it's just so dumb, it's like some prison ass shit. And so being as into the, the incarceration social hierarchy as much as it is. This kid runs and tells skinheads, like basically a a shortened version, like, yeah, he's got got a problem with the race rules. Yeah.
0: Not good. Not good. I know. I'm just sitting there
1: trying to. I know. The first time I was like shaving, I was at the sink in the day room. And I feel, I two guys walk over. I look over, was kind of leaning in and be like, we got your problem with with the rules here. I'm like, and I gave him a quick one. I'm like, look, this is what I said. And there was never like, like, obviously I was like, oh shit, what's about to happen. But it was pretty quick. It was all verbal. It was like, you know, just fall in line, whatever. I'm like, okay, well I don't want to get in a bunch of shit over something, you know, like I'm, I'm going to be out of here in a week. But on the way back to my tent, I, I uh, walk past the tent where that kid, uh, where that kid's bunk was, he's playing spades. And I'm like, yo bro, that was a, bitch ass move to do that not knowing that hard hard rule like the, where like if if someone calls you a bitch or a punk you have to throw hands and it's like and there's all this there's all these layers of like why does it have to be like ex, like expanded to all this shit but it's like there's literally this whole thing of like if you don't fight when the rules code of conduct would call for it, you make your whole race look weak. It's not just like you look weak, it's like we look weak. And so, this kid, and there's a bunch of people around, everybody heard it. I still don't know, like, that I'd said one of the, the big no no words. Fortunately, he's a 19 very, very skinny, but like, he ends up. Like, I don't know if he told the, the skins, but they found out. And so this time I'm like, oh shit, what's about to happen? But um they're like go in the showers right now, and that's not what you want to have heads of any race tell you when you're in, in jail or prison. And so I walked in the curtain and there's this. I mean, he had to be like a 60 pounds tops. 19 year old kid who is obligated at that. Like you are not a man. We'll kick your ass. If you don't punch him. like rocking back and forth, the showers going up behind him, like totally <laughs> nervous. And he's just like, you, you, you should have called me a bitch. And it was just like, it was just like, like barely felt it. And I just shook my head and I looked at him. And it's like <laughs> other people that are like more states, with politics would have like encouraged me to go a different direction. I look at him, I shook my head. I'm like, well, I'm out of here in five days, and just walked away, <laughs> and and I got away with that. And later on, wow, what a nicer skins. So he, he sat down. He's like, just so you know, it's like we're we're helping these guys by preparing them for the prison bid that they're eventually going to do. Um, so that could have ended a lot worse. The the, the uh, part of trip one to Durango that I skipped over earlier, and we talked about this before, was. So after you get through the horseshoe, you go to your pond. And at that point, like a lot of times you just want to sleep. You're like, I have a bed. You know, I'm going to be fed at regular times again. So I slept as much as I could, but my appetite is just getting worse and worse. And so like I, I wake up after for a couple of hours, no one's in my pot. There's four blocks so me and three other people. And I just see this carton of milk staring back at me with all its calcium and vitamin D and calories and nourishment. And it was, there was no like, there was no logical thought process like milk, drink. And so I took it. I think I went to the bathroom real quick or maybe the, to down it, somebody saw. And so this is, this is the first time I understand like how serious these race politics are. So they um, had a meeting between the Paisa and the Woods and they negotiated my, 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 my punishment, my discipline for this. And I wasn't told, obviously, but that night when they're like, yeah, we need you to uh, clean the bathroom as your chore and then I'm like, I do not think this is gonna end well for me. And it could have ended a lot worse, but it was like, sure, it's like out of a movie. Like I go in there mop in hand I look around I'm like everyone's leaving <laughs> like this is what I expected and um so the, the paisa they call their enforcer the car everyone else calls all the other races called torpedoes so what they negotiated was that the carnal for the paisa who was like he totally like he looked like a little Latino boxer he even had a little duck tail in back and shit like short but cut and so he comes in with the torpedo for the whites and first the pice the guy was like they agreed i'm glad they negotiated this for me they agreed no 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 uh face shots it was all going to be like gut you know body blows so Carnal comes up boom 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 three quick ones i like fall i fall on the ground it's knocked the wind out of me you know had some bruising and stuff nothing too crazy and then it was like the, the torpedo for the whites which is like they could have surely found a more intimidating person <laughs> it <This guy laughs> looks like you worked in a head shop or some shit but it was like so reluctant like i don't want to hit another white and he's just like <sighs> and it was it wasn't even a real punch but it's like i i got off with that as my punishment they moved and they moved me to the next pod over um which went a lot smoother there was one guy Flacco, that was there he's like i heard what you did over there boy you're a little fucking thief huh? but um Outside of that, it was a lot smoother. However, I was like, it was the most heartbreaking incarceration (laughs) I had. I was like so earnestly wanting that commissary. I was like, oh my God, my parents will bail me out, but they put money out of my books. And I didn't, I didn't grab my ID when I got moved to their pod. And so when they're doing a headcount every day, it's like, oh, don't worry about it. We got your picture. But no one told me you have to have that for commissaries. So like the commissary, it's like in my head, it's like this is like first time at Disney, like, oh my God. And it's right there in the, you know, in the little rolling case. And then I find out I can't, I can't get it without the ID. I literally, it wasn't even like a, you need to stop that or we're gonna fucking put you in solitary. The the female DO. That was like handing out the commissary. She comes back into the bathroom while I'm punching the concrete wall. She's like, "It's gonna be okay," you know. And then, and then this is where the the, the racial politics can work out in your favor because as a part of the 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 Wood family of Caucasian people, they knowing that I didn't have commissary, you know, some stepped up and like, "Well, bro, you have this honey bun or this or that." But that was like I have never been so so heartbroken over Honey Buns and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, whatever. <laughs> well,
0: was the, was it the green? Was the breakfast uh, still green bologna when you were in there?
1: Uh, that's like it was so luxurious when I got to uh, the tents for the second half of that last last day because we would get yeah, we got three meals a day, but like in the in Durango, again, with my appetite raging packets like one in the morning and one at night. And if you don't have commissary, just pretend, imagine you're eating lunch. And like, it's so bad, it's like when you're, uh, I think in general, have you experienced this? But like a lot of times, when you first go to like downtown Phoenix jail, they've got a lot more peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and that shit becomes like caviar like a delicacy once you start getting the breakfasts of like the the green bologna and just the most taste like i still remember the taste just the most tasteless like what the fuck type of weed is this bread and what else did they give us i don't remember but yeah that it was like the most disgusting breakfast you could have ever had and it was like and that was that so sums up Gerard sure, pile is like he was proud of that green baloney. You know, it was and I'm sure you've covered this before, but like one thing that's important for people to understand that don't know about that much about Gerard pile is like for what, decades? This guy like played into the fears of every like World War II generation person and boomer that he was gonna protect us from the Mexicans and the drugs, and this was for our own good. And in the midst of it all, it's just like the human rights violations are really like crazy. And, and the brown recluse spiders in the tents. I mean, this guy who like, he claims, seem like an honest guy, he claims that like sometimes judges will be harder on ex-military because they hold him to a higher standard. So this guy, I don't know the details, but it's something about a couch and his ex-girlfriend. This is why he's in jail, because he took the couch. So the first time when I did the week and a half, stole the milk and all that, I was in his pod and he had gotten moved in from the tents because he got bit by a brown recluse. And I didn't know up until this point that the brown recluse venom basically eats away your skin and you know it, like it just corrodes your flesh and so initially this guy's hand was like swollen up like a grapefruit um i happened to be in the same pot as him six months later and at that point it was like a third, the swelling was gone it was like a third degree burn scar
0: you know what I'm saying? This is like,
1: you know, it's, it's, I'm sure his life went on and I hope he's happy in a life state. But it's like it's just a classic example of like that's what people are put through. And this guy is over a couch with his ex-girlfriend. And we and you and I have talked about um, this aspect of it too. So I hope I hope it's changed out there, but like that old school law and order type dynamic. It was like, and it wasn't just me. I you tell other people too. For a lot of people, it made you like the, the verbal or you know, physical abuse, you get that. It's like you get out of there, like almost like the, the inner animal is like revved up. And, you know, and it's not like, a, I know for you know, some people, they're able to get in their substance abuse programs if they're doing a longer sentence and counting, but it was really not conducive to getting my life together. And it was very traumatizing. And it's like, after, you know, going through that a few times, it's like, there starts to be like a dehumanizing aspect of it, you know? So it just really like exacerbated where I was at with kind of giving up on life, you know, with drugs. And so like, after that last 30 day thing where it was like half in Durango, half in the tents, by then after two years on, on math, that was like, well, and I dabbled a little bit with like snorting hair and I was like, well, might as well become a junkie too. So I got to detox in jail, but my, I finally the bulbs that to my dad, cause he could tell that he was going from bad to worse. So eventually, like when he's on of ton like, I'm on heroin or whatever. And rightfully so he, he, long story short i at the end of living in la in 2001 to 2004 um someone that I met working at Beverly Hills bmw had a copious supply of benzos and opiates and i ended up moving back to arizona because i had gotten so far gone on that stuff but like so my dad took me this was pre-obamacare i didn't have insurance he literally came to la from phoenix we packed up my stuff and then went camping in Central Coast, California. I just, so I was all like, you know, in addict, like blame everything on other people mode. So like this woman had, she very much facilitated me becoming an addict, but like, it was her fault. So surely if she just got two bottles of Oxycontin refilled, I, I'm entitled to one because I got a taper. So I take that, I go camping and I'm slowly tapering down. But my dad saw over the course of this that being with, especially if it's you know, loved one, your son, it's like, it's it's an awful experience to be a third party too. You I mean, especially if like you love, but you can't do anything about it. You know, you're just gonna kind of let it play out. But you know, so I've experienced it for some of all the the writhing and the restless leg stuff, the sweating, and um, rightfully so. When I told him a couple years later I've been doing heroin, he's like working in florida at that point and he's like i am not gonna watch you go through that again but if you can detox you can come out here try you know get away from all the bad influences out there and, and, and at least take a break and so he came like a week before i got released from the sense and he's like well your detox, you detox gonna do this so i ended up um coming out to florida to visit it's like the, it's like gilligan's island it's like the three hour tour that i'm still here 14 years later but um at, at first i came out here and it was it I, I managed it was like i was away from all my drug connections i was like we were living right on hollywood beach and like florida was just new it was like you know about beautiful chicks and, and and tropical beaches not like wow there's a lot of drug problems here you know i hadn't really seen as much of the dark side but I did soon enough. I, I I met like I started playing poker a lot when I came out here because played blackjack. They didn't have legal Blackjack yet, so, except for the the uh, casino cruises. So I meet some like former AAA baseball player at the casino one night, and like as we're cashing, I was like, "You want to go to Gulfstream?" Like, what's Gulfstream? It's another casino up the street. But like we're walking and talking, and he gives me a, a, a Xanax, and then he just like. We're like at like ground zero for like the, the Florida crack cocaine scene. And I had tried it before, but it was like literally when that night, it was like when people say like, oh, I was addicted from the first hit. It didn't happen with the other hits. A lot of time I was on meth and it was just like, you're on this long-term high and then crack. It's just like, boom, and then you go back down. high, so, But this was like, I experienced the bell ringer I heard about. And it was just like, I was fucked. It was like, it was like instant possession. And I remember like so many days we like, don't, it was like, I ride my bike. I call my house to get down to the, the shitty part of town with all the hustling. And I remember so many times being like, don't do it. Do not do it. Get your and it was just like, it was like even worse than though There was like the demonic call. And so it only took like three months before I got, Arrested. In, I'm pretty sure it was a sting operation. Um, got arrested in alley for like a ten dollar rock, and I had had my experiences before with like little fuck ups, and that was like a bigger fuck up. But I was not prepared when I looked at the charge sheet to see felony, you know, and to see that for the first time after like you know getting by with just like some misdemeanor charges where it's like you know, especially with like. Time passing. Something's funny, like trespassing in a park after hour or loitering in a park after hours, trespassing for charging myself on a was well always poor, weather. But like that was obviously a real wake-up call. You know, I'm sure you remember some of the feelings that you saw when you looked over your app, your charges. Uh, uh, so I had I was given an option and understand, like for years before this even if I wasn't ready, it was like, I was never like, this is the life I wanna live. Like, you know, the, I, cause I saw people where it's like, you're a lifetime tweaker, you know, you're a lifetime. Te-. I was always like, always like dreaming of a day when I move really past it. Um, so by the time that happened, I was at least somewhat receptive to like, you know, doing something different. And I had the option of obviously taking a felony i don't want to do that um i could have gone on probation and it would have been a much more volatile situation if i like you know relapsed or any dirty tests. the consequences could be a lot worse on probation you know or could end up with the felony charge so that was a risky venture supposed to be a chronic relapser the third option was to do their their diversion program their drug court program and i had i could have transferred it back to Arizona. But I would have had to like, it would have been way more expensive to pay for every year analysis drop. And, and Florida didn't seem like that bad of a place to be stuck. So I didn't realize at first that it's a year plus, like at least a year. It's how long it takes to get through drug court. Um, so even we finding that out, that was also a shock. Like, oh my God, that's what I signed up for. But to Broward County's credit, which is for Fort Lauderdale is, um they have a whole arsenal of like programs here and support and, and like i said hopefully it's gotten better in arizona and they had some programs back then but just like full county run detox system you know it's not obvious mean, nothing like super fancy it doesn't need to be it does a trick give you the medications get you out the drugs and then um they have a it's like a sliding scale payment 30-day treatment program but a lot of people just end up getting free treatment so it took not once but twice in 2008 going through that and um was like you know from there i still it wasn't like i got out i was a saint you know stuff but it was like that helped me get the tools to where over time know, yeah, I, I would get a taste of like when i got my insurance license i would get a taste of like what getting your shit together could do and um you know, even if I, I didn't stick with the 12 step 12 step rule, but like I got like so much out of that period. And I realized so much of it was like, don't be an asshole. You know, like it's like when I was deep in my addiction, it was like really, you know, people fall into that, like everything's other people, you know, everyone else is falling, on stuff. And I just realized, like, even though I am a very nice guy, that I saw like all these personality flaws, you know, that it developed over the year, the whole DJ thing definitely can exacerbate that, you know, cause you end up with like your ego and the trappings of people like to give DJs drugs and stuff like that. But um, no, it was uh, like, that was kind of the turning point, you know, where like that, that experience and not like my limited experience here with the uh, jail system is like, Compared to what I saw in Arizona, it's just like, it's still, you know, they're busting your balls, DOs are going to be DOs, but it's like, um, it's just less abusive, there's less disrespect, there's less treating people like animals, you know, just a little bit of extra mutual respect, and it's like, this is still a a county or part of the state with a lot of problems, but they actually have mechanisms to help people get back on track, which is, you know, helped turn my life around but yeah that that experience versus what i went through in arizona was very night and day and you- so, so you
0: so you have experienced arizona jail you've experienced florida jail yes is it is the rules the racial rules in florida what are they like
1: they're not it's more like just informal you know it's like you you get that level of tribalism where people still kind of flock together you know with their own culture but there's none of that none of that uh organized type race stuff
0: so as soon as you go into a florida jail the ab don't come up to you and say hey wood you got to sit with your people
1: yeah none of that
0: there's none of that in florida
1: no not that i witnessed but just as a as a as a qualifier i think it was like two somewhere between two and three days before i got released because i agreed to do drug court um, the only two times that I've been arrested since, and very unfortunate, um, you know, talk to you a little bit about my situation with custody of my daughter, is that I've had two occasions where both charges were dropped, but I was framed for domestic violence by my daughter's mom, who has at this point not let me see my daughter. I haven't seen her since August, mm. but about almost a year ago it was March seventh, I think. Um, long story real short, she got evicted kind of wheezer way to staying at my place for a couple months. And then about a month in, I was like, you're starting to do that thing where you drink a little bit and mouth off. So like while you're staying with me, no drinking. And I didn't enforce that. So early March one night, she she gets a little tipsy. I had a few glasses of wine too to where I was like my decision making could have been better. You know, but um I basically I ended up pouring out her glass glass or bottle of wine because she kept mouthing off. She knocked a tumbler wine out of my, out of my hand, that like, somehow I didn't break on the floor. And um, like, I left shortly after that to just let things cool down because I kind of like she had already done this before with like uh, you know false accusations. So I figured I'll get out of here. I'll go to the Kava Bar on the street, let things cool down. And um, when I came back. Apartment was trashed. Um called the like I called the police just to try to get her out of the apartment. Cause it was like it was getting scary. It was like I felt like if I didn't do something, I was gonna end up in jail, which ended up happening anyway. But like they can't the police came out and as I suspected, they're like, well, she's been here over two weeks, so we can't do anything. You got to either evict her or uh, get a restraining order. I'm like, I figured that might be the case. So thank you officers for your time. And then 15 minutes later, so, uh, my ex who was like in my bed with my daughter at that point, she'd up out of bed. She comes to the living room with, uh, holding my daughter and is like yelling to solve this like verbal abuse. I'm like, no one like, and it's weird. She's always like, nobody likes you. It's like, ironically, she has an issue retaining friends. I have a huge, like sprawling group of friends. It's almost like, that's like her like weird jealousy thing, but anyway, um, before I get too sidetracked, this, like while I'm cleaning up her mess, um, uh, like stuff she broke while I was up the street. Um, she comes out, she's yelling at me with my daughter. I'm mopping the, whatever she spilled on the floor. She takes a step towards me, slips on the wet floor holding my daughter. And as soon as she falls to ground, she's like,
0: yeah, dad, dad.
1: And. I called the I called the police again and I knew I'm like there's a slight chance to go valley but it ended up where like they told me like she knows exactly what to say to we have to arrest you you know that charge got dropped in October as I knew it would, because they even had video evidence that like if you really analyze it you see the story is not add up but um she is it's just very sad like she used that that period of time where I had a charge living over my head to like get me in a position where like I took my lawyer's advice, I was doing supervised visits, paying like $65 to see my daughter for an hour while someone unnecessarily supervised it. I'm an amazing dad, not a perfect dad, but people that see my daughter know like how ridiculous that is. And then when the charge got dropped in October, she she made herself like unavailable to be served. Like if I, now if I get her in front of a judge, the uh, all the leverage she had is gone. So first she went to Gainesville, up uh, yeah the north end of the state. She was staying with her aunt, and um, ended up like getting into an altercation of some sort with her aunt's roommate. Police came out, no charges filed. DCF Department of Children and Families comes out. She refuses a drug test. Um, like forbids our daughter from like answering other questions kind of like you know kicks them out as quickly as she can and then leaves her aunts and then she came back down to Fort Lauderdale area but DCF showed up the next day with an open case that they didn't open up a case right away but like at that point then they had legal leverage of the state of her custody situation she was gone and like she doesn't answer texts anymore as uh a real uh insult to injury type thing a couple of weeks ago and i think i would mentioned this to you i did um on a long shot like hail mary move I, I i contacted the visitation place and knowing just like as always that i it was ridiculous i had to do those but i would i hadn't seen my daughter in like six plus months so like i wanted to see her however i could and her mom like finally responded and said yeah we can do a visit this weekend and i knew that i I knew not to get my hopes up too much but i'm like thinking like wow i might get to see my daughter for the first time in you know six seven months a few days before valentine's day and a week before her seventh birthday you know Mm -hmm. didn't show up and it's like you know i i've been i was already really actively involved with music this is really Ratchet that ratchet that up a lot because I mean, that's it's, it's an awful like when people ask me what I'm doing, you know, and they actually want a, like, a full answer. You know, uh, things are going really well on many levels, but it's just like, like the music thing kind of like is the most natural and effective way of like kind of filling that void, you know, because it's just it's really sad, and, you know, it, it, as far as. What you focus on a lot of times with the injust, you know the injustices, peculiarities, and absurdities of of the you know the legal and court system. it's it's really it's sad that like if you screw up, you know, there's no uh, no shortage of uh, actions will take against you to punish you. But like when, like as the victim in the system, victim, I'm gonna go see my daughter. It's like initially you would hope, like that, even if you're like um, cynical about the system, that like you would get some help through the state or the police or DCF. And it's like between lack of coordination, incompetence, and just and just them not really seeing, it just feels like everything's like just another case on their desk. You know, it's a, it's a very, uh, very heavy feeling to realize like there is no quick solution. And that the, even if there's laws being broken, there's no one that really, I have called the police, you know, the police trying to do something about it. The court, I have called the court three times. I haven't gotten one call back. Yeah, like over the last couple of weeks so um you know I, I know it'll work out a lot and once once i get uh max in front of a judge things should be very good for me but like right now it's you know mm. she's just uh on the road with my daughter which is uh it's tragic and i hope i hope like she comes around but i think there's there's probably like an aspect here of like she never knew max never knew her biological dad and I think there's a lot of projection going on, there. you know, like there's, that she's got a void from that. She's probably got resentment. And it's like, I'm like the scapegoat for all, you know, for all bad things in her life. So yeah, that's like, that's, that's the, the depressing aspect of my current story. I right know, but I, I keeping my head up, I, I think like, honestly, it's just to the point where um most of people told me it's like I guess you know, save up to get a private eye, probably and track her down. It's, it's it's so lame that it's come to that, you know. But uh, that's where we're at. You know? look, but Rob I,
0: I, Rob, you've you've um you've told your story really well. Your descriptions yeah. of the jail and all that stuff, man. Absolutely mind-blowing. And really appreciate you spending time with us today. So okay. if, if if people want to support you or follow you on socials. What where, where can they do that at? I'll, I'll put your links below this video.
1: Awesome, yeah, I'll send those over to you. So, as you said at the beginning, in the 90s, I was known as PRG. Um, I don't know we into that story. But um, I kind of like when I took what, 15, oh, what, 10, 15 years off teaching, Um I was kind of like thinking if I ever got back into it, like maybe, um, use a different name so now i'm djing under robert purge but it's like there's like there's a plan of words there shit. you know like after after all the binging you, know, you got a purge um but it was actually just a plan words that like uh friends would like playfully just like read prg out like we're like what's up purge and people started calling me purge and so that's <laughs> after that came up so like on instagram i'm robert underscore purge um it's Robert Purge on uh well I'll send you the links, Robert Purge on uh I'm TikToking now. I never like I don't do the lip sync videos, but I've I've become really savvy with the, the social media marketing. So I got on there. Um Robert Purge, I have an artist page on Facebook. Uh um, Bula Beats is a uh, pop-up club that I started doing at Kava bars on. I just real quick, I select on Kava, it's a really cool uh not underground scene. It's a cool, like, I was gonna say hipster scene. It's a, it's a wide range of people, but like, with this being a state with a lot of substance abuse issues, a big part of the Kava scene is that with Kava and Kratom, you can get a buzz, but they're not like intoxicating. Kratom is physically habit forming to do your do your research. But um, what started out is like, hey, I had a Kava bars on like, DJing again. I started playing a few uh, gigs at cabo Bars and it really took off to where it's like, uh, now I'm at the point where I'm like going to start trying to get the clubs and stuff, but rather than trying to jump on other people's stuff, I feel like it took off enough to where like there was a demand for like entertainment at cabo Bars and like yeah, this pop-up like house and rape beat thing worked out really well. So Bula Beats is the name of that. And, um, I need I'll send you the link for, for Patreon. So I'm starting to use that more, but it's I gotta change the name Roberto Purge. Um but yeah, and um I am currently involved with DJing as uh, as much as I can be making my own original music, but like before I ever started DJing or producing the beats, like since 91, I was playing alternative punk bands. So I had that going on and, and both the DJ and that is both like the same Facebook page. I'm kind of like merging those two worlds together a little bit more. Um, whereas like in the '90s, like I have my punk band and I have my, my rave life. But um, on top of that, I like I I uh, released my first record with Swell back in like 2000, and I've been working on stuff on and off since then. Just haven't been releasing anything. So, over the next let's just say year, um, this will be on my social media pages. Obviously, I'm going to be recording an EP to start out, an album of like the all rock stuff. Um, I'm going to be releasing a bunch of my live stuff um, Like, I always kind of like the live recording thing better for DJing because it's like just sitting there recording mix is kind of sterile, you know. So, I'm pulling going through all these live mixes, pulling that up. And then um, I'm gonna start releasing like there's some really good like, not just electronic stuff like you know music that's sequenced on a computer whether it be hip hop, trip hop, house, trance, and it's just been kind of like I've had all these tracks to so like not really collecting dust but just like where I've been waiting for the right time to start releasing them. So it's like over the next year, two years, hopefully I'm gonna have a lot of stuff coming in so i will send you those links um i um uh, will also i wanted to apologize real quick i don't know if you remember uh through uh Lonnie, i said when, when she was talking to you when you're when you're still in prison i said i was going to send you a mix
0: <laughs> every day <did>. so <laughs> oh that's uh, is- don't sweat it, man. This
1: is like, I mean, how surreal is it, though? No, isn't it last surreal? Last time I saw you, it was two thousand. How much? How, how much? Like you were tiny little in the How much less did you weigh? Because you look so healthy. And like now, I remember at the end there, man. I
0: um, I think I was like one hundred and sixty pounds, and now I'm like two hundred pounds is it yeah. yeah yeah that was yeah that
1: was my thing like back in the back in the 90s i couldn't really break 160 165 i was
0: stuck at once in the 160s yeah, yeah. all right so rob i wish you all the best with your music i you. hope, hope you get to see your daughter soon that's really sad and yeah. for the and for the people watching this all of rob's links will be in the description box below the video if you want to check his stuff out if you've got any questions for him and please let us know what you thought about this interview today with my friend from so long ago. And also, if you'd like to see us interview more people from the Arizona rave party crazy days, because there are tons of them out there. And um, a lot of them have got different perspectives, different stories. You know, they met Wild Man when I wasn't there. There's all kinds of shit that, uh, yeah, still, still waiting to be told. <laughs>
1: it's like, yeah, it's like a reality TV show
0: isn't it isn't it
1: yeah i I would love that if you started to meet some other people because it's like you know yeah our own little unique universe back then
0: didn't we yeah yeah
1: but But, this is so surreal and so great to catch up with you after all this time
0: right i'm gonna stop recording hold on don't go anywhere let's see recording how do i stop recording or is it stop video oh it is. stop recording